Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another session of NACTA's virtual programming lineup. As we enter the eighth month of virtual programming, uh, NACTA and our staff and our affiliates have produced more than 200 hours of virtual programming. So um, we've gotten pretty used to this, and I'm, I'm confident that, that the majority of the sessions that we have produced have been educational in nature and will provide you and your staffs an extra element of professional development. We hope each of you had a wonderful Thanksgiving and all those celebrations were a little different than previous years. We all still have a lot to be thankful for. NACTA is grateful for all of our members and their dedication to the industry during these very, very challenging times. It's our goal to continue to provide valuable professional development opportunities for you in a virtual capacity are we, and we are looking forward to continuing this tradition with today's panel presented in partnership with our friends from the National Association of Athletic Compliance Coordinators. We have hosted several discussions surrounding name, image, and likeness over the past few months, but in today's session titled Building in Institutional Control in the NIL Area, we will hear more about the proposed legislation, legislation from co compliance practitioners themselves. We've had a lot of athletics directors, a lot of board members, a lot of NCAA staff speaking on NIL, but today we're gonna have actual practitioners, which we're really looking forward to. In particular, our, our speakers will focus on action items that your athletics department can now take and to prepare for what is to come in terms of NIL. Today's session will be moderated by Penny Parker, NACTA's Secretary and Director of Athletics at Rollins College. Penny will be joined by Aaron Atkins, Associate Athletics Director of Compliance at UCLA, Blake Barlow, Associate Athletics Director for Risk Management and Compliance Services at the University of Texas, Malcolm Grace, Assistant Athletics Director of Compliance at Villanova University, and Kyle Waterstone, Associate Athletics Director of Compliance at Creighton University. We know there'll be a lot of questions during this session, so we have added an extra 30 minutes onto the session. So this session today will be 90 minutes in duration. As I said, we'll know, we know there'll be a lot of questions. Penny's prepared to moderate the questions as they come in. And you all are very familiar on how to do that, but just in case, there's a chat button on the bottom of your Zoom screen. Please use that chat button to uh, type your question in, and Penny will make certain during the course of the 90 minutes to ask the question and then direct it to the appropriate person for the answer. Thank you again for all of us, for all of you, for joining us. And uh, Penny, take it away. Well, thank you, Bob. Um, it is my pleasure to work with NAC on presenting this very important content um, to our membership. I am glad that NAC has the opportunity to address this group on the front end of the, and provide considerations on the proposals. We've been very intentional in creating our strategy for the session today, and we want to provide you with specific, helpful content and suggestions. We realized there have been many NIL webinars, as you had said, Bob, but none of them were with practitioners. Um, we hope that today you'll be able to take away specific examples for your institution's consideration and help you identify which discussions you should be having on your campus now. Our goal is to provide a positive educational session 
and include some of the did you think about this material. We hope to establish guidelines to help you build institutional foundations, including what you should be thinking about before this is implemented. Uh, we want you to be prepared to put your, your institution in a place to be proactive once some or all of these are passed. Um, before we start, I wanted to review the timeline for the Division I legislation, which we'll be covering today. December 15th is the deadline for conferences to submit amendments to the proposals identified for the January vote. January 11th is the Division I Council vote on the pro proposals. January 14th is the Board of Directors vote on the proposal. And then of course, August 1st is the effective date for all of the proposals. Um, before we go much further, I do wanna mention that there is state legislation that may make some of these proposals moot or certainly cause conflict with um, these proposals. Um, the state legislation um, proposals are sponsored in Florida and it's effective January 1st, or I'm sorry, July 1st, 2021. California is effective January 1st, 2023. Colorado is effective the same time, January 1st, 2023. Nebraska is on or before July 1st of 2023. And New Jersey is effective in 2025. There are two federal proposals that have not been passed yet. Um, there's a US House bill, which is called the Student Athlete Level Playing Field Act, and the US Senate bill, Fairness in Collegiate Athletics Act. So as, as a reminder, we all know that each division has their own proposals and they are nuanced from one another. We're gonna review the division one legislation, but I am confident that during the campus conversations, we will have takeaways to take back to each of our campuses. So Malcolm, I'm gonna ask you to go ahead and review proposals 2020-6 and 2020-7. Thank you. Thank you, Penny. Um, first, uh, proposal 2020-6 relates to name, image, and likeness activities for current student athletes. Uh, the proposal begins by amending the definition of an agent so that it applies to individuals who market athletics ability for financial gain as a professional athlete. Uh, it also amends the definition of amateur status so that eligibility is impacted for those individuals who use their athletic skill for pay or the promise of pay uh, for participation in the sport. Regarding student athlete business activities, uh, this proposal allows student athletes to use their name, image, and likeness to promote their own athletic and non-athletic businesses, products, services, and personal appearances. Um, it allows student athletes to represent uh, reference their involvement in intercollegiate athletics and their institution as long as it is consistent with institutional policies to promote their businesses. Student athletes may not use institutional marks and they may not receive any compensation for athletic performance or participation. Um, for institutional involvement, neither the institution nor staff members are allowed to be involved in the development, operational promotion of a student athlete's business and uh, they are prohibited from purchasing student athletes product or service. Institutional facilities may not be used. And there is an exception for those businesses that are developed as part of a class. These restrictions in this proposal do not apply. Um, student athletes are allowed to post or repost to their social media accounts 
um, content that's been created by the institution or one of the institution's vendors, provided that the institution retains all of the rights and the student athlete does not use that content to receive any compensation. Regarding merchandise and memorabilia, student athletes may not sell any items that have been provided by their institution until he or she has exhausted the eligibility or they have rendered themselves permanently ineligible for intercollegiate athletics. Uh, student athletes are allowed to sell items that they have purchased with their own monies subject to institutional restrictions. Regarding autographs, student athletes may receive compensation for their autograph. Uh, however, they may not be paid for the autograph while they are involved in any required athletically related activities or while they are representing their institution. Similarly, institutional marks may not be used when selling an autograph. Uh, for fee for lessons, student athletes may use their name, image, or likeness to promote their fee for lesson activities. Um, they may use institutional facilities for fee for lessons provided the student athlete rents the facility in a manner consistent with the general public. Playing lessons are not allowed. Uh, all fees must be paid by the le uh, lesson recipient or a family member. And if lessons are provided to more than one recipient at a time, uh, the instruction provided must be like a private lesson. Uh, the new proposal allows student athletes to engage in crowdfunding for their educational expenses. Uh, they may use their name, image, and likeness for those purposes, um, provided they are raising funds for expenses that are not included in the definition of cost of, of attendance. And again, the institution may not be involved in those crowdfunding activities at all. Um, for disclosure, student athletes must disclose to their in institution all information related to their business activities. That includes the details of the relationships with everybody involved, contact information for everyone involved, and the compensation arrangement. Uh, the student athletes must provide information about their NIL arrangements in advance, and they must disclose any changes to those arrangements within 14 days. Uh, when student athletes get involved in non-institutional promotional activities, um, they are allowed to use their name, image, and likeness to advertise commercial products or services, um, but there can be no institutional involvement in arranging that opportunity, uh, developing it, or promoting it, uh, or the student athlete's relationship with the commercial entity. Um, student athletes may not use institutional marks. Uh, they may not receive any compensation for athletics performance or as an inducement to enroll at the institution. Student athlete may not use their name, image, or likeness to promote any products that directly conflict with NCAA legislation. Uh, that includes things like sports wagering and banned substances. Um, student athletes may not use their name, image, or likeness also to promote um, that an institution is using a particular equipment manufacturer's equipment. Um, all institutions retain the discretion to be able to prohibit name, image, and likeness activities that conflict with existing institutional sponsorship agreements or with the institution's values. Um, those policies must be provided to any student athletes at, a at the time that um, an aid offer is presented. For autographs, student athletes may receive compensation for their autographs um, during non-promotional activities as well. Um, during those autograph opportunities, 
So they may not use institutional marks either. Uh, student athletes can engage in crowdfunding as well uh, for specific charitable purposes and use their NLI in those uh, activities. Um, that would be things like disaster relief or providing assistance to a family experiencing hardship. Um, all excess proceeds from that crowdfunding must go to a not-for-profit organization. Uh, for student athlete business activities, um, they must disclose all of their information related to those activities um, to uh, the compliance officer, to the institution. Again, that includes um, compensation arrangements, the details of everybody involved, um, any changes to the arrangement as well. Um, next for proposal 2020-7 uh, applies to name, image, and likeness activities for prospective student athletes. Uh, prospective student athletes also may use their name, image, and likeness to promote their athletic and non-athletic businesses, products, services, and personal appearances. Um, like student athletes, uh, prospective student athletes may not receive any compensation for athletic performance or as an inducement to enroll. Um, institutional involvement, again, the institution staff members may not be involved in developing um, those businesses or may not be involved in promoting them and institutional facilities may not be used. A prospective student athlete may receive compensation for his or her autograph, for educational expenses uh, and crowdfunding. A prospective student athlete may use their name, image and likeness to crowdfund for their educational expenses that are not a part of uh, their cost of attendance. And for disclosure of their private business activities, uh, any student athlete who receives an athletic aid offer must disclose their name, image, and likeness activities to an NCAA designated agency. Um, that includes all the information, again, related to compensation, who's involved, um, and the like. Uh, when prospective student athletes get involved in non-institutional promotional activities, again, they may use their name, image, and likeness to promote um, those commercial opportunities. Um, they may not receive any performance for athletic performance or, excuse me, any compensation for athletic performance or participation or as an enrollment inducement. Um, the institution, again, shall not be involved in arranging any of those opportunities whatsoever. And regarding uh, institutional uh, conflicts with any institutional arrangement, arrangements, uh, the institution, again, has to provide their policies uh, related to permissible and impermissible name, image, and likeness activities at the time a financial aid offer is made to a prospective student athlete. Uh, prospective student athletes may receive compensation for providing their autograph. And when prospective student athletes are involved in crowdfunding activities, they also may use their name, image, and likeness at that time. And again, all excess monies must go to the not-for-profit organization. Uh, finally, for disclosure requirements on prospective student athletes, again, they must disclose all information related to those arrangements to an NCAA designated entity. And they must disclose all information related to compensation, who's involved, and the like. Okay, it's a quick summary of 2020-6 and 2020-7. So Kyle, I'll turn it over to you. Awesome, thanks Malcolm. Uh, I don't know about everybody else, but I'm exhausted now. Uh, I need a break real quick. Um, and I'm also probably not the teacher's pet of the compliance world. I was late to the game to even realize that this got broken up into four proposals. So for anybody who's on the call, 
this is all now four different proposals. Malcolm just went over the first two. I'm going to cover the third one, which is 2020-8. Uh, this is essentially the professional service provider um, proposal. So the first step is I'd encourage everybody to read the rationale on the proposal. I think that's a good starting point. I think it helps to elucidate the greater intent of the proposal. Um, and so just a, a quote from it, it says, NIL activities will necessitate a student athlete securing professional services to navigate a complex business environment. It's imperative that student athletes receive guidance from qualified professionals in NIL activities. To me, that acknowledges that this is gonna be really difficult, that clearly everybody understands this is gonna to be tough. Um, what gets a little tricky for me with this proposal is when it starts to get into the institutional involvement. And so it says no institutional involvement at a minimum is that an institution may not be involved in the development, operation, or promotion of an NIL activity. And, and what that really means, I think, is what a lot of the folks on this call are gonna struggle with. We're gonna be in the weeds trying to figure out. Um, I think it also begs really two questions. First, who is a professional service provider? And, and you know, I think it's gonna be a marketing agent, a third-party vendor, a tax attorney, a contract advisor, anybody who's outside the institution who is inserting themselves in this process uh, to provide assistance to a student athlete in NIL activities is essentially going to be a professional service provider. What this proposal is saying is that they can do a few things. They can give advice on NIL. They can represent the student athlete in NIL contract negotiations and evaluations. And they can be involved in the marketing of the student athlete's um, name, image, or likeness. With a few caveats, as always, that's what every one of these NCAA proposals loves to do. So the caveats are that the individual can't also be an agent for the purposes of professional sports, that can't be an institutional employee or an independent contractor, and the individual, the student athlete's got to pay the going rate. Um, so that's kind of the first, first piece of it. The second question I have is, what, are, what does it mean when it says some institutional involvement? And I think this is the, the million-dollar question that we're all going to wrestle with, the $64,000 question, if you're old enough to know that reference. Um, but we... What I think we, we do know is that this proposal is saying we can't select the professional service provider or pay for the services. We can assist with vetting the professional service provider. But then I think the second piece of that is, well, where is that line between assistance and involvement? What is the permissible sum that the rationale and the proposal talk about? And what's the impermissible too much? Now you have involved yourself too much and there, there you're going to have some sort of infraction issue. Um, and I think that's ultimately what the, the remainder of this conversation is going to be about. But that's what 2020-8 addresses is the professional service providers. Penny? Thank you, Kyle. Um, Aaron, can you walk us through 2020-9, please? Yeah. Thank you, Penny, uh, Malcolm, and Kyle. Definitely Malcolm uh, took the, the brunt of the work here. You know, I, I think the first step from a compliance administrator's perspective is whenever we're reviewing proposals, it's one, getting them through to yourself, but also like, how do you present them in a, you know, platter manner to your athletic director, your chancellor, or your president? And when we decided to really look at these proposals and, and break them up into their four parts, it really, to me, started becoming as simple as, you know, the two that Malcolm provided for us, those are the base, like the meat of the proposal. How are our student athletes and um, potentially our prospects going to provide, get access to maximize their name, image, and likeness? So that's what proposal six and seven does. They really just create the environment to allow this to now happen. Uh, what Kyle just walked us through with proposal eight is, 
okay, well, if we're going to give them this power, what kind of uh, support are we going to provide around them, be it the marketing reps, the tax attorneys, um, the different people that are going to help them navigate that might not um, um, be within our institution? For me, when we look at nine, I truly think proposal nine, the fourth and final NIL proposal, starts um, forcing us to look at this idea of, frankly, the title of this webinar, institutional control and how we're going to monitor our student athletes. In proposal six, Malcolm talked to us about this idea of disclosure. Okay, you want to have a deal? You want to have a business? Well, you have to disclose it, right? And what we don't know is that, well, who are you disclosing that to? Are you disclosing it to your compliance office? Is that now my staff and, and our responsibility to wade through that? Is it the universities? Is it the conference? Is it the NCAAs? So proposal 2029 starts talking about this idea of a third party administrator. So maybe we're not just disclosing it to UCLA or Villanova or Texas, but maybe we're doing it to a third party. And so if proposal six passes, we know we have to disclose. So nine will help us identify somewhat because there's still a lot of questions that we need answered. Well, who are we disclosing and who's really in charge of taking in all that information? I think we all work at uh, vastly different schools, size, public, private. I myself have had the fortune to work at different sized institutions. And truly, I I'm not sure there's a compliance staff in the country that can handle the manpower required to all of this. It's going to be a great opportunity, but there's also going to require a lot of work institutionally. So when we start thinking about this third party administrator, especially for athletic directors and senior level admin that really have to start figuring out how this might work on your campus, um, the third party administrator might be a great way to start looking at that. We've talked about how you have to disclose prior to entering into a business um, or promotional activity, and that if it changes, you have to provide an update in 14 days. I mean, for a campus that has 700 student athletes or even 200 student athletes, that's a, lot of, that's a lot of moving parts, especially if you have student athletes in smaller deals all across um, different avenues of social media or, or, or different platforms. So this idea of a third party administrator, it's, it's a really good starting point. Uh, you know, we have to think about, are they gonna, they're gonna have to disclose compensation? Who are they in a relationship with? Who are the professional service providers? Who are all the involved parties? And it just starts to become a ton of information. So one web-based platform will really start helping us. But if we vote for a third-party administrator, the next question is, well, does each institution go out and find that one? Is the conference gonna put that on for us or is it gonna be association-wide? So, so those are, and, you know, and Blake will start really starting to get into those questions with us. Well, well what does that look like? Lastly, with third-party administrator and just something that might tie into the institutional uh, control as well is, you know, we've talked a lot about over the last two years, what does booster involvement look like? And how will these rules restrict or, restrict or permit booster involvement? What we know today is, you know, legal and practical and legitimate booster involvement is going to be okay and it could be permissible. A third party administrator may help some transparency. It's gonna push everything to the forefront. It's gonna put us to put everything on the table so that yes, if student A wants to work with booster A, they can, so long as it's a legitimate, the compensation is correct and the, and the, the arrangement is straight up. And by disclosing that and putting that in a third party administrator, uh, that, that may help us protect some of the recruiting pillars and competitive advantage and, and fair play that we're hoping that we can maintain in this new name, image, and likeness world. Uh, but, but I think that is, you know, that's my other piece of advice is, you know, when you start really looking at these proposals, almost break them down for your athletic director in its most simplest form. And, and as we summarize and close out the proposal section of this webinar, 
Six and seven are how you gain the access to NIL, how the student athletes and the prospect do it. Eight provides them agency and marketing representation to figure out how to wade that world because I don't think an 18 to 22 year old is ready for that business opportunity. And nine, we start really looking at, okay, well, how are we gonna monitor this? Where are the nuts and bolts and how do we get this done? So there's your proposals. Thanks, Benny. Thank you so much, Aaron and, and Malcolm and, and Kyle. Um, and as we all know, we just covered the proposals, but there's a lot of legislative and interpretive questions that still need to be answered by the NCAA. Um, and I know that NAC has been working on a, a list of questions and I was hoping that maybe Blake could review those for us today. Absolutely, thanks, Penny. Um, so with the NL vote now about six or so weeks away, there are still several unanswered questions that the legislative solutions group, I know NCAA legal, government relations and others are, are still sorting through, but we felt it would be prudent to spend a few minutes kind of digging into a little bit more into those unanswered questions and really identifying what we don't know about the NL framework and the institutional control mechanisms really at this point. So what NAC has tried to do is just collectively compile these questions and, and forward those to the legislative solutions group in hopes of vetting many of these things before this is actually voted on um, in January. So that's that's really our goal to this point. It's been a little bit of a slow process, but hopefully we're going to keep chipping away and um, really have those answers in place um, before everyone casts their vote again as this comes up in about six weeks. So since we're talking about institutional control, I think it makes sense to start with, you know, what are the monitoring and enforcement expectations with this legislation? And really, it all starts with disclosure. So as Aaron mentioned, the third party administrator legislation is adopted. Um, we know that the, the mechanism for disclosure will likely be some sort of online platform, but really, um, you know, it's, it's the disclosure is required in advance of the activity, but what exactly has to be disclosed? Um, we, if you've sat in the compliance chair for more than five minutes, you know that paperwork is not always a strength of our student athletes, um, but it really is a critical component of this entire NIL framework. So, you know, what's going to be the bare minimum? We know that a lot of these NIL deals will be fairly simple, and we know there's going to be some that involve contracts and uh, significant financial details, booster involvement, service providers, um, all of those things that probably need to, to have a more complex system to be able to account for that. So, uh, you know, with third party administrator, there's obviously going to be those technical issues that um, will be need to be sorted out. Things like how do you have a student athlete log in? Who can reset their password? Is it mobile friendly? You know, how do you create their accounts? Uh, those will be worked out over time. But, you know, if we do go this route, we, we anticipate a little bit of a bumpy road to start. But I think the, the most important thing with the system is for it to be dynamic enough to account for a variety of scenarios. You know, for example, if you have a student athlete who receives 50 bucks for an autograph, great, that's a simple disclosure. Um, but what about a student athlete who has a commercial campaign that involves a booster's company that was negotiated by an agent and there's a unique compensation structure based on items purchased from a unique link? There, you know, there can be those situations where it gets super complex. And so that, that online disclosure system, I think, needs to be dynamic enough to really to account for all those things. And then we talk about kind of what's required versus what's, what's a best practice from an institutional standpoint. If you're on probation or you're staring um, at a level one case in, a, in another sport that you probably want to do a little bit more than just the, the bare minimum um, when you're monitoring NIL activity. So can the system be customized to ask for more things just beyond just what the, uh, the basic requirement is for all student athletes? Again, a lot of us work with high profile athletes at your institution. You might, you might want to require more information from them, again, than what is minimally required um, uh, as you proceed. Um, there's also this idea of, you know, disclosure is required in advance of the activity, but is there additional steps that you want to take on your campus to do some sort of active affirmation, you know, requiring every student athlete to affirm that they have submitted all details 
whether it's one time a year before eligibility certification or multiple times a year or postseason certification, whatever you feel comfortable with, um, there is this idea that, that it might require a little bit more than just um, you know, waiting for the disclosures to come in uh, through the system. So again, assuming all of the, the information has been submitted uh, properly by a student athlete, then you get into really the questions about validation and what's the institutional expectation to confirm the accuracy and validity of all the details that have been provided as well as confirming that all details um, have been submitted as well as you know, what's the expectation to follow up on any questions before a deal takes place. Um, that's a hope where a, the third party administrator could potentially help in this area um, to where an institution gets information that they may not necessarily um, have all the, the right resources to determine whether something is fair market value, for example, or in fair market value for an agent fee, um, those types of things that we're not really experts in right now. And hopefully uh, over time, this third party administrator system could really help us on campus um, uh, trying to determine those things. Advance notice is going to be an issue as well. Um, you know, the example of a student athlete disclosing information, you know, you know, the night before a big game, you know, what steps do you as an institution need to take to ensure that the disclosure is complete and accurate and all the, you know, the follow-up questions you may have are done before you feel comfortable uh, permitting that student athlete to compete, say the next day, uh, for example. So, um, and I think with that comes the, the, the big question about what, what specific NIL actions would render a student athlete ineligible? Is it not disclosing? Is it something that was used for recruiting inducement or extra benefit? Uh, right now, the, the proposal is uh, for not disclosing is, um, is listed as a de minimis violation, meaning that it doesn't affect the student athlete's eligibility. Um, but there are some additional questions about what steps need to be taken by the student athlete or the institution to ensure that that is ultimately disclosed and that student athlete's eligibility is, is good for for the future as well. I think um, one, you know, one question that we come across a lot is, is what happens um, if a student athlete doesn't provide complete or truthful or accurate information. Normally that gets into a bylaw 10.1 unethical conduct uh, issue. Um, and we hope that we don't get to that space with NIL, but um, I think there certainly needs to be a little bit of a accountability on the student athlete side if they're gonna be required to disclose that that's um, not only a, a complete disclosure, but it's also, it's also truthful. Um, so, and I think that also, Kind of leads us into some of the enforcement questions of what's going to be the institutional liability or even the student athlete liability for NIL violations um, in terms of the expectations to withhold if you're unclear on uncertain uh, circumstances is it your responsibility as an institution to withhold the student athlete until you have all the info you need to make that um, informed decision and so obviously the enforcement expectations and requirements are going to dictate our approach to validation it's pretty clear that you know the enforcement mechanism is, is required to really make this whole thing work um, but again, it all just centers around what's required to be disclosed as well as what your institutional expectation is to validate that information um, before proceeding. So um, obviously there's a lot more unanswered, unanswered questions. Um, I think a couple others just to highlight that naturally tried to, to get clarity on is um, this line of institutional involvement and in drawing, you know, how do you provide um, the appropriate NL education um, without kind of working specifically on a student athlete's business idea or NIL activity? Um, as well as this, this idea of, you know, a lot of vendors are now offering NIL type of services um, for institutions that may bleed into services that student athletes might be able to take advantage of uh, for compensation down the road. So what, um, what's going to be the line there from the institutional stand, standpoint to be able to enter into these agreements knowing that they may involve into uh, some direct student athlete assistance with NIL activities. Um, use of institutional marks and the identification of an athlete in third-party promotions is going to be really tricky. I think the, the proposal as it's written right now is 
um, doesn't really allow those things to occur in, in terms of use of institutional marks, but it's not always as simple as a simple co-sponsored post of a, of a picture on Instagram, for example. Um, you could see a lot of different scenarios with videos or full length features on YouTube where there could be a lot of questions about what's the use of institutional marks or on campus, those types of things that I think are going to have to be vetted out over time. Um, and again, recruiting, obviously, um, that's that's probably the biggest one from the coaching standpoint is, you know, what's this disclosure, when is the disclosure going to be required, um, as well as what information is going to have to be vetted in advance prior to the issuance of an NLI or ASA um, to a prospect. It can get kind of tricky thinking about scenarios where someone has, hasn't necessarily committed to your institution and is required to disclose certain things. You, know, you might have two or three institutions trying to vet activities with a, a prospect before signing. So some of that stuff, I think, just needs to be hashed out um, over time, assuming we get to this third-party administrator model. So again, those are just a, a few things that we've identified. Um, our hope is that Nat can continue working with the Legislative Solutions Group to, to identify these things and ultimately have as many answers as possible um, before we vote on this in January. I think the idea is to make sure those things have been vetted out so we don't get to March or April after legislation has passed and I have to go back and say, wait a minute, there's a interpretive position on some sort of issue that nobody was really aware of and that might change um, how we handle NIL activities in the future. All right, thank you so much, Blake. Um, now um, that we've talked through some of these, we'd like to transition into our campus consideration conversations and talk about how each institution is approaching NIL. Um, Kyle, I wondered if you might be willing to lead us off in those um, conversations. I'll go first. I don't know if I'm the leader in, in this area, um, but you know, I think one of the things that you know this group talked about in preparation for this call was that there are so many questions, but but we all we all have to do something. Um, and so I think for for Creighton and for me, it starts with the topic of this webinar, which is uh, building institutional control. I think that needs to be our north star in, in all of this. And so. While we do have more questions than answers, that doesn't excuse us from our obligations as compliance practitioners, you know, to, to lead from the seat that we're in right now. Uh, the train of NIL has left the station. I think we all know that. And regardless of one's personal philosophical perspective on the issue, our job at this point is to help prepare our respective institutions for its arrival. Um, and so my conversations with the athletic director here at Creighton have really kind of revolved around three key areas. Uh, first is cost. Second is recruiting. And the third is accountability. Um, I'll kind of talk through what we've kind of thought about at each of those three phases. So cost, really, there's, there's a few different costs. There's a financial cost, obviously. There's an additional investment potentially made in, in third-party vendors or educational programming. Maybe you're going to have to hire additional personnel or um, outsource you know, educational programming on the front end, maybe even on the back end for monitoring. Um, and there's also a potential impact on your institutional corporate sponsors. There's a human cost. It's an additional time, effort, energy of the staff, probably away from their core responsibilities. And there's a reputational cost, uh, potentially with, you know, we asked the question, is this gonna detract from our institutional brand that we've worked really hard to establish over X number of years? And, and what's gonna happen when, not an if, when something goes awry, is that gonna have a reputational cost for our institution? The second thing I, you know, I, I mentioned that I talked with my athletic director about a lot is recruiting. Um, and so I know despite all the efforts of the proposals to say that NIL is not part of the recruiting process, every single person on this call knows that everything is recruiting. Uh, it, it all impacts recruiting one way or another. And it either is going to impact recruiting and in many ways it already has impacted recruiting depending on you know, where your institution is in this process. 
So knowing that it's part of the recruiting process and not burying your head in the sand about it, what are we going to do to maximize the potential benefit that NIL and, and its you know, subsidiaries are going to have to the institution and our sport programs, but, but also maintaining that integrity and the ethical piece that, that we all as compliance practitioners, that, that's at the core of what we're doing. Um, and I think ultimately that's where compliance practitioners have a seat at the table for this. That's where we actually can be a voice um, for, for leadership in our industry. And I encourage everybody on this call to take advantage of that opportunity to be an influencer um, in terms of you know, policies and procedures on your campus. And I know Aaron's gonna talk a lot about that um, next. The last thing I'll talk, uh, I talk with my AD a lot about is, is accountability. And so as I said earlier, when I was talking about 2028, uh, identifying the line of demarcation between institutional assistance and involvement is that million dollar question. So our fear is that if we're severely limited on what we can do on the front end in terms of involvement in the arrangement of the activities, then what's going to be the standard or the burden for monitoring it and the subsequent enforcement on the back end. Um, if I'm going to be held responsible for something, then I want to make sure I have some level of influence. Um, we know that as an institution, we're going to be held responsible for the actions of our individuals, regardless of our knowledge of it. So, you know, a question that, that Blake got to and we're going to continue pushing is, is that standard also going to apply to NIL activities? And when student athletes are being legislatively um, told that they can do this, but yet institutions are being legislatively removed from the process. Um, that's what's keeping me up at night and a two-year-old, but mostly that. Um, so I, I think for Creighton, though, I can't just complain about it. And that's what I go back to what I said at the beginning. Um, you know, we as compliance practitioners can't just sit here and, and ask lots of questions and not have any answers. Um, and so the complaining is going to kind of get left at the door. And so we've done a few things um, as much as we can do at this point. We've made a concerted effort to get the right stakeholders together. Um, you know, Creighton, we've established two different working groups. One is an external engagement group. Um, in many ways, this group is, is already up and running. Um, we partnered with a third party vendor to assist in this area. And, and honestly, much of their work is irrespective of the NIL legislative outcomes. Um, it's to help student athletes with their social media presence and things like that. The, the second group is, is kind of in the compliance wheelhouse. At, a lot of what we're doing is in a holding pattern, but, but in the meantime, we're, we're trying our best to establish checks and balances and, and get ahead of the education. So we've done our best to keep our coaches, staff, president, board of trustees, booster groups, faculty reps, um, you know, apprised of what's going on. We've made multiple presentations and communications to these stakeholders throughout the process, both about NCA legislation and about Nebraska state law. And we've done our best to boil down the NCA legalese like I said earlier, I was exhausted hearing Malcolm talk. My head hurts. So, you know, we've got to do our best to kind of consolidate that information into digestible bits of information for, for these constituents. Um, and then we've also begun considering the concept of engaging some of our key boosters and our local businesses who are likely going to be at the forefront of these NIL activities. Uh, really, we want to empower the folks that have a vested interest in protecting Creighton. We want to work together with them. And I know Malcolm uh, we'll talk specifically about a program at Villanova that they have um, that, that's really in line with that. Thank you, Kyle. Um, Aaron, um, we want to walk us through creating that NIL, I keep wanting to say the other way, um, committee and developing policies. Yeah, thank you. So, so two areas I kind of wanted to talk about were this idea of potentially an on-campus NIL tax, task force, but then also some quick um, thoughts about some policy building you, you could and almost should be thinking about today. 
Um, so first, and I, and I urge you to not be too impressed because Corona slash COVID and the return to competition has really put a pause on a lot of my NIL task force um, uh, doings, as I'm sure uh, most of us have. Um, you know, we, we thought about the beginning with NIL at UCLA is first, let's start utilizing who we have within our department and on our campus before we go to look to branch out with a partner. So about nine, um, big, maybe eight months ago or so, we started this idea of a UCLA um, name, image, and likeness task force. And prior to the task force, uh, myself and a senior associate at UCLA really wanted to break down what we wanted this task force to know and consider about NIL. And so we broke it down into three areas. And I think it's really helped us um, figure out how we put our arms around this. So our task force, we wanted it to develop into, okay, what are gonna be the policies and procedures? How are we gonna build a comprehensive educational program? And then lastly, how can we maximize and you know, what platform will we use to maximize all NIL opportunities for our student athletes? So once we had our three buckets, we then went out and thought, okay, well, who within our department and outside of our department can we utilize to start coming together for different ideas? So we brought um, numerous compliance um, folks from my staff, some senior admin, um, internal administration like um, student services and our academic folk and then some external such as marketing or development and then even our uh, communication staff. So we've got together um, that group along with three or four coaches to create this NIL task force. And again, it's kind of been floating uh, slowly and, and we need to start revamping it up because honestly we needed to start thinking about what are those proposals. Uh, the policy and procedures group is really going to be built with a lot of our compliance folks. I'm fortunate enough to have two staff members who really dig into following California state and federal legislation. So two staff members who are constantly reviewing that. And I know that they are monitoring what's happening at the federal level and, and what's happening at the California level. So that, so that goes within our policy and procedures group. And now within the last month, we got a really big boost to this group by actually getting the four proposals. So now that we have that, we can kind of start building now the other two groups. Well, how are we going to educate? Well, now we have the proposals. So probably getting everybody to understand the proposals, most importantly, our athletic director and our FAR. And then we start really thinking about how we're going to maximize our opportunities. So those are the three buckets. Those are the stakeholders that we've considered um, inviting into this world. Uh, you know, outside of that, I've thought about really needing a current student athlete voice. So maybe bringing our bringing a current student athlete into that uh, maximizing NIL opportunities bucket, um, even maybe a former student athlete. We're fortunate to have a former student athlete who's in law school and is very um, active in this area. So bringing her on. And then who are your campus partners? You know, we have a great business school, law school, graduate school of education. Um, you know, are there any courses or, or, or things that they're thinking of? So there's Honestly, while a ton of people are going out and they should be finding third-party partners to help educate, I think the first thing people should do is, well, what do we have on campus that we can kind of maximize first? So that way you can go to your athletic director and decide, okay, even with this, here's my holes. And, and this is where I need your assistance. So, so that's where we looked at the task force idea. Um, secondly, what I wanted to talk about is um, some policy that can, you can start building right now. So I have a new athletic director and, and the way we want to present really whether it's a, a new or um, any senior stakeholder is, you know, some action items like Kyle said we there is so much we don't know that we could kind of get down and be like, how are we going to wrap our hands around this. I have a control issue so I needed to find one area that I can just pinpoint and figure out okay here are some action items I can take away. 
Malcolm talked to us in 2026, the first proposal related to allowing student athletes to maximize. Within that proposal, there's maybe four sentences that just really stuck out to me and, and to some of our staff members, which was this idea of conflict. So there's two areas when you're looking at a student athlete maximizing opportunities that a, that a institution or athletic department can say, whoa, whoa, at our discretion, we are going to permit or not permit you to do this activity or promotion. So those two areas are, does this activity or promotion conflict with our existing partnership agreements? And does this uh, business activity or promotion conflict with our institutional values? And what that proposal says is an institution can say, hey, we are gonna permit you to do something that conflicts or we are not. And we need to build policy around what we stand for, how flexible are gonna be? Where are we gonna stand the line and say, you cannot participate in that type of activity? So when you start breaking down this idea of conflicts within your partnerships and conflicts within institutional value, you start realizing you've gotta have some pretty serious conversations within your department. And maybe even your athletic director needs to have some serious conversations with your president or chancellor. So, you know, you start getting together your external group and you say, what are the partnerships we need to protect that we really can't bear our student athletes conflicting with? Maybe there's none. Maybe you're just going to go out and let them and not build that policy. But each institution is going to differ on, we need to protect this nutrition brand. We need to protect this brand apparel, you know, this, this local sandwich shop, whatever it is, you're going to have to figure out, are you going to be permissive or are you going to pro prohibit? And, and what that line is. I was talking about this with associate just yesterday. It's even harder when you start thinking about institutional values, right? You start thinking, of course we have institutional values. It's so hard to foreshadow a business activity or a promotion that may come head on with one of those. You know, Two that we just started thinking about were, okay, if a student athlete starts partnering with an adult enter entertainment club, right? whether it be a sponsorship, building their own or, or whatever it is, is your institution, is that gonna align with their values? And are you gonna permit a student athlete to partner with, for lack of better words, a strip club, right? Like, where are you gonna land on that? Um, CBD, fitness cream, CBD topical cream, CBD gummies. If a student athlete, you know, not THC, not marijuana, decides they want to partner with a CBD company, where are you gonna align with that? And those are honestly two quick ideas that we thought of. And I'm sure there's a million more that you can think of that may clash with your institutional values, but where are you gonna set your line? How are you gonna determine what that is? And then per the proposal, you have to build policy because you have to put that in front of your student athletes and be like, yeah, yeah, you can maximize your NIL, just not in these areas, right? So you have to show them that and be prepared to show them that along with showing that to your prospects when you offer them aid per the proposal. So I just think it's hard because there's a lot of big thought that needs to go into it. But if you start thinking about action items, I just think there's a ton in there because it forces you to have really strong conversations with your athletic director, with your external group, with your internal group and find out where are you gonna be flexible? And you, I, I really feel like we all need to start having those conversations on our campus now because whether you're private or public, faith-based, religious-based, you know, true liberal arts education, you're, we're all gonna have different um, areas of where we're gonna be flexible and where we may not be. And 
and those are going to start coming to a head rather quickly. So that, that's the one item where for me on campus, we're going to start really having those tough conversations and, and figure out what are we going to protect or what are we going to allow them to, to do? Thank you, Erin. That was so helpful. Um, Malcolm, do you want to kind of walk us through what Villanova is working on right now on your campus? Sure. Um, so like uh, the institutions also represented on this panel, and I'm sure lots of yours as well, um, you know, we've tried to the best of our ability to make use of our campus partnerships um, in order to lay a solid groundwork for our name, image, and likeness work going forward. I mean, we started this past summer um, with building, you know, setting up a structure. We have different committees. Uh, some of you may know Katie Legrand, who I work with in compliance at Villanova. Um, we set up different committees for camps and for promotional activities and for social media. And we're bringing in resources from throughout the athletic department and across campus uh, to try to build a solid framework around that. And we've dialed that back considerably because as we all know, there are a lot of questions that are not yet answered. Um, but I think one area where I think we feel like we have a lot of confidence is in our ability to, to vet agents and vet third party professionals uh, that may wanna work with our student athletes in order to um, you know, promote their marketing opportunities or to use them in third party marketing. Um, you know, we're, we're fortunate again to have not only a premier, you know, basketball programs, but we have ec excellent athletes in other areas. So we've had a lot of experience with the process of ensuring that agents are registered, not only with the Commonwealth, um, but also we have a program in place where agents must register with our university in advance of having any interaction with our student athletes, particularly on campus. Um, we do a great job of promoting that, putting that information out on our website and agents know to reach out to us in advance. And I think using your existing structures um, that you're already um, in place to help your student athletes, um, I think is gonna be key for us and what we're doing. Um, you know, the student athletes that we work with um, also have certain expectations within their teams. So the coaches have rules about when student athletes may and may not interact with potential agents and how that is all gonna unfold. So we're gonna to continue to do that. And another thing that I think we've done that is very innovative in the space of um, student athlete education is working, at, working with our business school. Um, they've developed some concepts around teaching modules that are gonna be easy, online, accessible 24 hours a day uh, for our student athletes to learn some of the important things that they're gonna to have to know before they start um, taking advantage of name, image, and likeness opportunities. Things like, I mean, one of the ones that I think that gives all of us headaches, um, even though it may not directly impact eligibility, is the tax implication side of everything. We don't want our student athletes going out there starting businesses and getting tripped up and possibly in legal trouble because they're not um, filing and reporting their taxes and their income in the right way. Um, so we have training modules, concepts around, um, you know, not only marketing, uh, personal finance, business finance, um, tax implications that are ready to go. Obviously we have a lot of work to do to tweak those and to get those um, where they're ready for our student athletes to access. Um, but all of these are things that we're doing within our campus community right now. Um, again, a lot of questions to be answered as Blake laid out, but 
Um, I think for all of us, irrespective of the size and the resources of what you have, whether it's in your compliance office um, and across campus, um, taking advantage of those resources that you have, getting them in place. Um, we also work with our law school, every other department across campus that we have a longstanding relationship we're working with. So uh, I would encourage all institutions, compliance administrators to do as much as that partnership building now on the front end so that it's in place once the legislation is finalized. All right, thank you, Malcolm. Um, Blake, do you wanna um, kind of summarize everything and let us know what you're doing on your campus, please? Sure, absolutely. Um, so we on our campus haven't gotten to the point of the specific panels and committees uh, just yet as others on this panel have, but one of the things we've tried to do is invest a lot of resources in our um, student athletes in terms of NIL education. So our ideas were really born out of, you know, being ahead of the game in recruiting as a lot of things um, tend, tend to be born out of, but I think it's evolved into a really valuable resource for our student athletes just to start thinking about what this looks like in the next eight to nine months. So um, our student athlete development team did a phenomenal job of just building this out and starting to execute it virtually um, this fall. And what we did is we launched a series of virtual meetings, basically just to introduce the framework of NIL and really start to provide the education on the basics, you know, the personal branding, um, the business formation, entrepreneurship, financial literacy, and kind of vetting opportunities. And compliance was invited to, to discuss NIL concepts and, um, and things that may be relevant to them at this point and what the next nine months are gonna look like. Um, but really it was helpful to kind of have a, a carrot for the student athletes to come in and start learning more. Um, and we kind of compliance came back in on the tail end to help uh, refine some of these things. Um, but really I've kind of started our focus really heavily on social media and the specific steps that student athletes can take now um, to prepare their, their platforms for these future opportunities. And those student athletes who attended multiple, se multiple sessions um, could receive one-on-one -on -one support from a creative staff member to discuss their social media platform and other types of enhancement um, opportunities. So I wanted to try to, again, provide some incentive for those that um, did um, join all, all the sessions available to try to get something out of it at the end. So, you know, this is obviously at, at a high resource institution like Texas, but I think the principles can really translate to institutions of any resource level. And again, I, identifying the what's in it for me section for the student athletes and promote what will ultimately um, draw in their attention. I mean, a lot of this NIL info is easily transferable to other uh, business or, or life skills. You know, the feedback that we got from our first session is that, you know, a lot of student athletes said, I don't think I'm really going to have many NIL opportunities, but I think I can also use some of these things to transfer as I become a professional in, in whatever career um, that I choose. So as others had mentioned, finding ways to utilize what's already on your campus, um, you know, search for the best and the brightest who are already teaching and educating and doing these things um, on your campus. Um, you know, not every institution has the resources or uh, willingness to hire an NIL expert to come in and educate student athletes. So try as, as much as you can to find those that are already um, working on your campus uh, right now. Um, obviously, you want your program to be continuous and stable as NIL legislation evolves. And so having those that are invested in it um, right now, I think is going to be really helpful um, for the long term. And I think, you know, a lot of things is, is making sure you can build out what resources you have for student athletes. Not every student athlete wants to sit through an hour long webinar on brand management, but they may, you know, appreciate you sending a couple links to articles or, you know, maybe a center on campus that, that deals with students on, on certain areas. So just as much as you can try to identify those situations. So again, you can be as helpful as possible when student athletes, when the, when the time um, really comes. And I think, you know, the, the last thing is 
the, the, the financial reality that we're in right now with COVID and for many of our student athletes, uh, the, the part-time job, the internship, it's, it might not be there this, this off season. And we have a lot of concerns about student athletes working anywhere when they're around other people right now. And I think that concern is going to continue through the spring and perhaps even longer. So I think framing this in a way to help student athletes think about it in that sense that you may not have that internship that you were banking off for the summer. So let's talk about some NIL opportunities, trying to get them to think through that way because um, this is coming. And, and I think it would be helpful for them to know um, kind of what the landscape is going to be likely looking like when, when August comes around. Well, Thank you so much, panelists. I know that um, I'm sure everybody else is feeling like I am. There's a lot to wrap your head around here. Um, even as an AD who grew up in the compliance chair, this is simply gonna be transformational for every, everybody in the industry. And um, I know we have a few questions that I wanted to get to. Um, I urge um, anybody who has a question to put it in the Q&A or in the chat box. So I'll go ahead and start with, um, what one which was um, in the chat box, and anybody can answer this, um, would an uncle be a professional service provider? Yeah, I would think if they do the activities that the proposal uh, addresses, then anybody could trigger that definition if they engage them in, in, that, in that process. Um, I'll, if anybody feels differently, I'm definitely not the expert in here. So first caveat is like, you know, we're pretty vulnerable by even coming up here to take some of these questions. Agree, but but I would agree with Kyle. I mean, we've seen the uncle example in a few agent um, relationships from other amateurism issues within the NCLA, NCAA. So I, I would imagine the NCAA tran parallels that very similarly. And from an amateurism world, the uncle who is acting as representation has always um, first been the representation. So. I, I would assume that role passes the same way. Okay, um, I will go on. In your opinion, is creating a list of previously vetted professional service providers still only institutional assistance? Yeah, I would, I would say yes. Um, you know, speaking from, um, to follow up on the, the points I made about our internal um, process of vetting agents. That's a list that we generate for athlete, athlete agents currently. Um, it's not something that we necessarily share and give it to um, our student athletes when they're in the process of um, considering turning pro. Um, but, you know, as just part of our process of registration, knowing who's coming on campus, knowing who's talking to our student athletes and trying to make sure um, that they're not only lawfully able to engage in that conduct, but uh, following the rules and know what the NCAA rules are. Uh, yeah, I would think uh, developing that list, again, not endorsing anyone on it, but just saying these are individuals that we've done a minimum level of background work on would be okay. Yeah, yeah, I would second Malcolm's points. I would agree there. Uh, I think, again, the rationale on 2028 talks about institutions having some assistance ability. And I think that that's the sum that Malcolm is uh, talking about. The, the real, you know, kind of going over the edge, at least in the agent world, which again, I would translate to the professional service provider world would be the, the selection and the endorsement. Once you start saying who's good and who's bad, um, then, then I think you, you have engaged in selecting. Uh, but to, to Malcolm's point, simply stating who's lawfully able to do this, who meets certain criterion, um, I think would be 
would fall into that, whether it was pre-approved or, or done on the fly. All right, thank you. Um, I have one that's specific for Aaron. Um, could you remind everybody what the three primary focuses of your task force were? Yeah, so we looked at it. Um, first is the policies and procedures. So what are the rules, bylaws, be it NCAA or uh, federal and state that are gonna guide the principles? So that's policies and procedures. The second one is um, building a comprehensive education uh, program, right? So how are we gonna educate stakeholders, student athletes, um, campus and, and whatnot? And the third is the fun, right? Like how do we maximize NIL opportunities? How are we going to put our student athletes at the forefront of gaining access to this world, but the right way? All right, thank you. A quick um, question here. Do institutions plan to dedicate department staff solely to NIL activities? I'd love to. I don't know if that's possible. You, you could. I mean, if you're resourced enough, there there is enough here to have its own little three, four person law firm. I mean, that's how big this is. Like transformative is the word, Benny, you used it. It's, it's, it's rebuilding everything we know. And it's, while it's gonna be put on compliance administrators, it, it's really gonna take a village because this is, it, it's a lot from, from all the three things I just named to the monitoring and taking a control of it. Um, you could, whether or not anybody has the resources at this point to do that, I think that's why we're seeing so many schools partner and, and, and look outwards because maybe that fifty to $100,000 deal with a third party partner is worth, you know, the four or five people, if not upwards, that it takes to maybe do this on a day to day basis on your, on your campus. I, I think it's also the kind of to think through what is the most likely NAL activity scenario on your campus when, the, when this thing first launches. Is it social media? Is it autographs? Do you have a rabid fan base that, st that stays after games and wants student athletes to sign everything? Is that going to turn into some sort of compensation model? So I think, as Aaron mentioned, this could turn into a, a massive, massive undertaking or in some campuses, it may not be that big of a deal. We just don't really know. So I think trying to Focus on your campus and what you think is going to happen will help you kind of prepare your resources and then can adjust accordingly. Yeah, to that point, another uh, helpful thing we did at Villanova was we've already conducted a survey of our student athletes to kind of get a baseline of what they think about NIL, what sort of opportunities might be most um, appealing to them. Um, I mean, we know that we're going to, you know, include our marketing staff, our communication staff on um these teams as we form them going forward but um you know i think you know certainly um just trying to get as many people on campus involved as you can is is going to be key for us all right um what do you think is the biggest area for violations with nil that is what would you predict to be the top violation um in nil for like two years from now I think that depends on what is going to be a violation. Um, you know, if it's if not disclosing is is a violation, that is going to be it, right? Because we're going to have tons of situations where student athletes forget to or don't care to disclose, and you know that's one of the things we talked about in those unanswered questions is what's the consequence of not disclosing. So, um, absent that, I mean, I, I I would assume there'd be some sort of questions on the um, booster involvement. Um, that, that's probably going to be a big one, especially in the recruiting space. 
All right, I, for my division two and division three friends who are out there, what are your recommendations or tips for a one person compliant shop? I, I think you start with, I'm, I think you start with understanding where you're gonna hit. Like, Kyle was talking a few days ago about pain points. I mean, really understanding like what is going to be your push and, and where are your student athletes? You know, if you're a one person staff and you have maybe 300 student athletes, like maybe starting with a survey, like a realistic, who's going to actually take advantage of this? Where is it going to, is it going to mostly be in social media? Um, just you, at, the smaller the staff size, the more you really need to understand where your focus is. Because just like you are in a normal world, when you're a one or two person staff size, you can't be everywhere, right? So the same way you handle the rule book in general, you kind of handle NIL, which is you just do a base blanket and you find your pain point and you just you focus on that because that's really, that's what that's what you can do and that that's what you can control. But the, it, it's, it's difficult, most definitely. Yeah, I think it's priority based. You have to uh, you know, assess where your, your priorities, if your priorities are gonna be on educational efforts on the front end and then you know, hope and pray that everything works out, then, then that's gonna be where you, you really double down and develop the best educational program that you can possibly do. Utilize whatever you know, technology platform you have to hit them over the head with it over and over again. Um, you know, that could be a good starting point. Maybe it's, you know what, we don't even really want them to really know that this even is going on. And so we're just going to, I'm going to focus 30 minutes of my day on just monitoring social media or whatever it is. Uh, I, I think it's an individual decision that you're going to have to make about where your priorities lie. Well, you touched on this briefly, Kyle. What are some of the platforms that you are using to generate NIL educational resources for student athletes? I mean, so far it's been, you know, pretty, pretty manual. Um, you know, I, we're just kind of taking what we do know, which is not much, um, and communicating it directly to student athletes through, you know, whatever sort of roster management software that, you know, your institution has. Um, you know, we haven't quite gotten to the point of doing student athlete team meetings. Uh, we did with our uh, men's and women's basketball programs, um, but but outside of that, we haven't fully engaged. So it's really been sort of manual at this point. I think Blake's is probably more advanced uh, than anybody else's on this call. So I'll, I'll kick it over to him. Yeah, for us, it's been just really a series of virtual meetings, you know, doing it via Zoom on an, uh, a weeknight. I mean, our first session, we have 520 or so student athletes. We had almost 300 on the first session. So quite a bit of, of engagement, just hearing what we're talking about. And obviously as we, Continue to build out the program there will probably be, be some more opportunities especially for that one-on-one -on -one interaction as we uh, hopefully get back to a normal atmosphere on campus we have something specific for you blake um you mentioned the preparation that is taking place now for student athletes to prepare their platforms for when this actually goes into effect um, this person's interested in your thoughts on how this intersects with the prohibition on institutional involvement in the actual proposal. Um, this person said they've heard much debate about if this is actually, if this actually crosses that line. Yeah, I think the idea is just providing education in terms of just overall, overall personal, uh, brand management. I mean, um, there, in a situation where you have a staff member that's that's actually doing things for a student athlete social media, I think that's clearly going to cross the line. But just generally providing the education of here's how you engage your followers, whether you want to use it for NIL monetization purposes or not. I think there's a lot of 
value for a student athlete, regardless, again, if you're going to use it for um, monetization or you're going to use it to promote your career when you when you finish your eligibility and you move forward into the professional world. So trying to make sure that we, we keep it as, as education um, based as possible. And I think the other things, just speaking to more of the social media side is I think one thing that has been helpful for me is really to try to dive in a little bit more into the social media sites to learn more about how this stuff works. Um, I try to fancy myself as kind of in the know, but I don't have a TikTok or um, I don't deal with a lot of these, these newer services. So just trying to familiarize yourself with what it is, because that's definitely what our, our student athlete population is using. And those are a lot of really um, easy monetization platforms that will be available to them. So I think familiarizing yourself with some of these things, just to, when you get questions and make sure that you understand exactly what you're talking about. Are you doing any um, education specific to international student athletes who sometimes, are, well, they have restrictions on their employment? That's a good question. I mean, we, we definitely have some some campus-based restrictions. I'm, I'm not sure from an immigration standpoint what any restrictions are going to be for them to engage in NIL activities. I think that's a great question. I don't know if other panelists have, have already vetted that, but that's not something that we've addressed in our campus yet. We haven't yet either. Okay, there's, as we talked about in the very beginning, there may be conflict with the um, NCA legislation and state, actual state legislation. Um, so one of the questions is with Florida allowing NIL first to go into effect um, sooner than the others, um, any talks on possible flexibility, um, fle flexibility from the NCA compliance side since Florida will only permit adherence to federal law? And I think uh, the date for that effective date uh, was um, July 1st, 2021, and the proposals are actually August 1st. Yeah. No clue. I, yeah, I think that's hard, especially I don't think any of the four of us have, are institutions within Florida. I just know that, you know, being at a UC school in the past couple of years, like anytime NCA law has differed from um, California state law, we've had to work directly with our government relations staff and figure out where that lies. Like it honestly, even when the agency laws changed a few years ago and we allowed student athletes to sign and then maintain eligibility, we had to work directly with the state of California to figure out um, how we can amend and change all of that. And so I think until and if there's not a federal legislation you know, this NCA proposals are only going to take us so far. And then it really puts institutions in those states at a burden of really working with their local government officials and seeing how far they can change and adapt it. And, and, and it's, you know, Florida's kind of up first, but un until we see a federal overhaul, I, I worry that's we're going to be in individual state fights until then. Um, one of the... Um attendees wanted to know if you are engaging with your university council and if you are um, how uh, yes definitely um, and so kind of on a couple fronts one um, my position reports uh, to the general counsel's office so that that's that's part of it but also you know on any sort of committee or working group or key stakeholder meeting that we're having somebody from our our council's office is a part of that process I think it's going to be even more important moving forward and i've read some of the questions in the chat that are talking about the the conflict of institutional agreements versus existing student athlete agreements and you know 
that's beyond my wheelhouse. I'm just a lawyer on TV. So like for me, I gotta, you know, have to work with those folks to try to figure out how this is gonna all play out. I think that's great advice. Um, let's skip to um, proposal 2020-9. Um, and the question is why are only um, PSAs who receive athletics aid required to disclose NIL activities to the third party? All student athletes have to disclose. So why would all, why would all PSAs not have to disclose? I mean, I, I think it's almost, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's almost as simple as the fact that they may or may not be NCAA student athletes, right? Once you receive an offer of aid and you're committed to an institution, then you have to abide by NCA rules, right? But the normal 17-year-old junior or senior in high school that has yet committed to an institution, I don't think the NCAA has an umbrella over them, right? At what I think the question goes to, at what point does the NCAA's reach demand a prospect to abide by their rules. And I think the line they're setting is, well, once you accept an offer of aid at one of our institutions, but you can't, you know, you can't make a, a freshman or sophomore in high school abide by NCA rules because it's, it's just not their umbrella and it's not their reach. Um, one question that I think is important for us to address is NIL has an equity component. Um, what discussions have you had on this subject at your institutions? I don't think we've had a lot of discussion at this point, and we want to make sure that the education that we're providing is available to to all of our student athletes. I think just thinking about this big picture, um, you know, I think we're going to have a lot of female student athletes that are going to have some significant NIL opportunities, and in some cases more so than our, our male student athletes. I know um, Aaron can probably speak to some of the gymnastics um, situations they've had on their campus. I mean, that we we are the same. We have a lot of high profile student athletes, so I think. In terms of the opportunities, I, I do think they, they will be there. And as a, as a campus, we want to make sure that we're providing the same resources and education um, to, to both men and women student athletes. Yeah, I, I think that's where the fun is. I think Lead One or one of the higher ed, uh, education um, did a poll of like some of the top 10 that may maximize, especially on social media. And I believe we had three or four, and they were all our female student athletes, uh, softball. Uh, women's basketball and a couple of gymnastics. So I, I think it's going to be great that they're, you know, the social media influence and the different sponsorship opportunities. Um, I am high hopes that it's going to spread to our female student athletes. And, and, I, and I think that's going to be a really exciting world for them. I think there was just a great article related to um, NCAA cheerleaders and the amount of money that they have been making in this space and how successful they have been. So I think you're going to see a lot of our female student athletes following that line. And you know, I think we're going to see them have a, a ton of opportunity. And that's just this new world of social media and sponsorships. I think you'll be hard pressed if you don't ask some of your student athletes how many times they get hit up on Instagram. Hey, sponsor this, do this. We want to give you this clothing deal. And hopefully right now they're saying no, we're bringing those to you. But I think there's a lot of female student athletes receiving those opportunities already. And now we're going to be able to allow them to capitalize. So I, I think, yes, we have to monitor the equity, but I'm excited for the opportunities our females are going to get. And I, I, I've always thought that, you know, the vast majority of student athletes will be able to take advantage of things like, you know, fee for lessons and that, those sorts of opportunities. So, um, you know, it's, it's a seems like a small issue, but just making sure that if you're allowing access to to facilities on campus that you know your female student athletes have the same access that, that the men do 
Um, you know, sometimes the, you know, the facilities aren't equal across all sports and the quality of the locker rooms and the like, but if you're going to be, you know, allow fee for service um, lessons, you're going to allow institutional facilities for that. Just make sure that, you know, you're making sure that your female athletes are aware of those opportunities as much as the male athletes are, and then just give them equal access to, to all of those, um, you know, the buildings and fields that they might need. All right. Um, there were a couple of interpretive questions. Um, so we'll go back to the first one. And it was, how will fee for lessons work, um, for example, with golf students, um, work where the, like the USGA prevents them from such activities regarding their amateur status? Um, I can take a swing at that one. I mean, my understanding has always been that the USGA amateur rules would supersede NCAA rules. Um, no different than their prize money restrictions uh, in summer golf, for example. So that would be my, my first guess unless the USGA issues some sort of different advice. Yeah, I, I, would, I would echo those same thoughts. I think that the same would apply to any other uh, national governing body that has their own um, rules and regulations that at this point, in, this is just covering NCA stuff. So if those individuals also want to participate in U.S. Golf Association things, then they're going to have to adhere to their bylaws. Okay, um, where is the line for institutional marks? Do we prohibit the use of school colors or anything that would result in a reasonable individual connecting the student athlete with our institution? For example, the departmental font. Yeah, I think this is a really good question. This goes back to the likeness issue, right? Like the EA Sports video games, um, you know, the old debate from 15, 20 years ago where it's like, yeah, that we all know who you're talking about kind of thing. Or why is it, you know, that a certain number is the number of the jersey sold in the bookstore every year um, without a name on the back, but it's that number that year. We, you know, those are the sort of things that I think we all can kind of get at. Um, but you know, Blake brought up a really a bunch of good questions that NAC submitted, and there was another question in the in the chat about this too, about you know what is on call, what is off call, and you know Blake mentioned that that NAC's asking for clarification on what about films that happen on campus where it's identifiable where you are, or if there's a, you know a, a significant mark or statue or something that your institution has, and that's in the background. I think those are all questions. They're really good ones, and I don't think any of us have the answer to those yet. And that's where this, we're gonna get in the weeds in the next you know, two to four months and probably even after as you know, 134 page Q and A's come out. Um, here's one, has anyone compared the proposals with state specific legislation that is set to go into effect in the states um, sooner than later? Um, I'm sure we all have kind of looked at those. Some some of the some of the proposals are more restrictive, some are less restrictive. But I think it's very very important that if you live in one of those states, you become familiar with those um, legislative proposals that are available from your state. Yeah, I can take a first crack at it. You know, I came from a state that that had it, a law, and um, Aaron will talk about that. And and I'm in a state now that that has an in a law that's that's active essentially. Um, and I have compared it, and, and really the best way that I've used the kind of analogy I used to describe to um, Board of Trustees and, and the President and such is that the NCA rules are opening the door of NIL um, to a certain extent, and, and the door's getting cracked. Uh, the state law in Nebraska rips it off the hinges. So at some point, those two things are mutually exclusive, um, and that, that's the challenge that we're going to have. Aaron already alluded to it. Th this, is, this 
um, is a, an absolute disaster if we get to the point where we just have um, two mutually exclusive events happening simultaneously. There's no way for us to, to also meet NCA requirements and then not commit misdemeanors here in the state. Um, there's even you know, pr uh, provisions in this state law that says the NCA nor the institution can do anything to, to, um, to reprimand the student athletes for engaging this behavior. So I don't even know how that would work um, because kicking us out of the NCA would be penalizing for us. And so the state law is saying the NCA can't even do that. So I, I have no idea. Again, I, as I said earlier, I'm just, I just play a lawyer on TV. So I, I'm trying to figure this out too, but, but that's where the, the biggest challenges are gonna lie is when there's state laws that are clearly um, in an opposite position than where the NCA rules are going. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's just really hard. I I I don't you know. I think it's somewhat in line with California, but it, it's 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 not all the way there. Which we knew the NCAA's first crack wasn't going to push them all the way there. I think they are still super hopeful for some type of federal relief by the time we get through this. And and I think that's truly where um, us we are all at as a membership because otherwise it's every man for themselves fifty times over. And and I think it's enough to crack the door open and get us through to next get us to next fall, but I, I, you know, I think we continue to all realize we need federal relief there and the pandemic and the crisis around us is not helping us in that area because federally right now, you know, the national name, image and likeness bill for, for college students it is not currently at our government's, you know, first thought where it was maybe nine months ago. So we're losing some ground there and, you know, we continue to still see two trains colliding. So we're just going to have to manage it. Well, I'll take one more international student athlete question. Um, where do you see the line drawn for international student athletes being able to engage in opportunities in their home country, as opposed to domestic um, opportunities? To what length may the institution have to go to vet or monitor those activities? I think that's a, a great question. I would assume that the legislation is going to require that to be disclosed. And if it's in Spanish or Greek or Italian, then you're going to figure that out if you're required to validate or monitor any aspects of it. So I, I do think the opportunity is going to be available. But yeah, that, that presents a, a different challenge, especially when you start talking about foreign companies and some of the, the other issues and laws that you may deal with outside of the United States that, um, that, that definitely could, could get tricky. Okay. Um, will a specific student athlete be able to use an outside company such as Open Doors as their professional service provider if the institution also contracts with them to provide education and analytics to their student athletes in general? I love this question because I, I, a few of us on staff bang our head against the door. I mean, every time we see a release, you know, we talked about it within this group, influencer. Partnering, partnering with Cameo and, and the way it's written, I just don't know if we know the answer that if you partner with Influencer and Teamworks who partners with Cameo, can your student athletes use Cameo? But now you have an exclusive right to Cameo. Like I, I worry that some of these deals are cart in front of the horse. And now if we start really looking at this legislation, are we now putting our student athletes at a disadvantage? because we've partnered with a company that doesn't have a clear line of demarcation of how they're assisting their student athletes. And 
you know, this idea of education versus involvement is, is really going to, like Kyle said, it's a million dollar question, but there are a lot of releases out there that, that walk that fine line that, you know, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know if then they can turn around and partner with open doors on their own when you're already paying open doors for influencer for a service. Um, but I love this question because I don't know the answer. And it's, it's the one that keeps me up at night because I'm itching for UCLA to have a partner. And this is, this is what's preventing us. I'll be honest. Like we want to know where our strengths could be and where our student athlete strengths can be. And, and we don't have the answer to that. And that's a huge reason why we haven't had a partner yet. Malcolm, I see you nodding. Did you want to add anything to that? Um, I don't, yeah, I, I think Aaron's answer was thorough. I don't really have much to ask. I mean, I think we um, at, at Villanova, for example, and we've met with the Open Doors, we've met with um, Influencer. Um, there are actually some enterprising um, Villanova alumni that are actually developing uh, a solution um, concept that's going to be unique for us that they may then market more broadly in the future. Um, so there's a lot that we're looking at. Um, you know, I don't think any of us really know yet um, how extensive our student athletes are going to take advantage of these opportunities, how much, how much interest they have in even having the third parties involved. Um, I think what we're understanding is they want something that's simple and they can do something on their phone and send out a social media post and get a bunch of a check back in the mail a couple of days later. Um, so, I mean, all that being said, I mean, we, we hope to be able to facilitate as much activity as our student athletes want to be involved in, um, you know, within the rules. Um, don't know yet, um, but I, I would say we hope so. And I think we as an institution would push for that flexibility. All right. Well, I think we're, we're closing in on our time. Um, I just want to kind of, I would say, summarize a lot of what we said today is, I, I, if anything, it's always a work in progress. And I feel like this is going to be um, one of the most challenging things that I think we've dealt with as a membership. Um, moving forward. And I really appreciate the presenters today. I think you all have done wonderful, um, you know, preparing us for what our institutions should be thinking about and considering about this um, new legislation and how we can put ourselves in a position to hit the ground running when um, some or all of it passes in January. So thank you. Well, thank Bob, you, Penny. Penny, I couldn't have sum summarized it up any better. Um, you know, the information, someone like me who isn't obviously actively involved in this, I mean, you've really got me thinking, you've got my head spinning, and, and I can't thank you enough for your, uh, for your leadership, uh, for your passion on this subject, and the service that you're providing. Our institutions and our student athletes are just phenomenal, so thank you all very much, and thank you for all the participants who joined us today. Um, Based on what you told me, I just hope you get a lot of rest over the holiday season because come January, you're all going to need it. That's for sure. But uh, but seriously, thank you all very much. Penny, great job. Appreciate your your leadership on this also. And uh, good luck to everyone out there and stay safe. Thank you very much. Thank Bye. you, everybody.